Night gathers, and now my rewatch begins. Welcome back to Oysters, Clams, and Cockles, the number one Game of Thrones podcast in the realm for people who party like Tyrion and slay like Daenerys, brought to you by Grand X Media. I am Ross Bolin at the Grand X Media Studios in Austin, Texas, with my co-host, Barrett Dudley. Hello, sir. Good morning, or afternoon, or evening, or whenever you're tuning in to this premiere podcast. Hmm. Premiere podcast. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's what we are. (laughs) This is the Night's Rewatch. We are doing a podcast for every episode of Game of Thrones, starting with season one, episode one, leading up to the final season of our favorite show, so we can all be as prepared as possible. Take the black and join us. Tell your friends, your family members, your coworkers, your neighbors, anybody you know who loves Game of Thrones. Tell them Oysters, Clams, and Cockles is doing the Night's Rewatch and that they should join. Otherwise, you know... When the army of the dead comes, they're on their own. Hotline calls. We got a couple we're going to play up front today and one that we're going to play later on in the episode when it makes more sense. Our hotline number is 866-43-CLAMS, as in oysters, clams, and cockles. You can call our hotline at any time with questions, takes, theories, news related to Game of Thrones, whatever it is you may have. 866-43-CLAMS is the number you want to call. It's a voicemail anytime, any day. If you mess up, hang up and call back. It's not a big deal. Uh, here's our first call this week. Hey, what's up? This is Taylor. Well, my friends call me Tyler to piss me off, so I guess I'll join the Tyler squad. Uh, kind of a general question. What is exactly the house of black and white? Is it a religion just for people that live inside that temple? Do people in Bravos, Westeros, Essos worship that? Or is it just those individual people? Is it considered religion or like cult? Just any sort of clarification would help. All right. Thanks. See ya. I got you, dog. I used the Google machine. (laughs) And I'm going to answer some of these questions. Uh, No, because I like, I had never really delve into the, the history of the House of Black and White. So I wanted to get a little bit for us, for the Clam Fam, so we can all have a better understanding. So first off, 
It's a, the House of Black and White is the temple. That's what the temple is called. In Bravos, dedicated to the many-faced god. It serves as the headquarters of the guild of religious assassins known as the Faceless Men. So yeah, it's a religious thing. Uh, it sits alone on that small island in the lagoon of Bravos, so there's no other buildings or people on that little island that the actual temple is on. Now, is it an island or is it an isthmus? That's a good question. Because it kind of just juts out. I think it's, it, it, this said or it maybe was an it's, island. May, well, maybe it's just a bridge that crosses over to it. I think that's the case. Maybe so. Well, because remember, she had to take a boat to get to that's the, right. to that's, the actual okay. little island. Good point. So I don't know. But in this religion of the many-faced god, it dates back to the time of the Valyrian Empire. It began after something called the Giscari Wars, before the slave revolt of 500 BC. Again, it always blows my mind how much history there is to this place <laughs> that we never even get near. It doesn't even need to exist, but it does but because it does. George R. R. Martin is so insane. Yeah, it does. This was a religion born of slavery. It rose up first in the volcanic mines, which were run on slave labor during the height of the Valyrian Empire. And apparently what little legend there is says that the first faceless man heard the praying of the thousands of slaves from thousands of backgrounds and concluded that they all prayed to the same God, one that merely had a thousand faces, and that they all prayed for the same thing to be released from their suffering, hence the, you know, obsession with death. Wait, wait, does it say when the Valyrian Empire, is that what you called it? Yes. It says when it was at its height. When was that? I do not know. No? Okay. I do not know. I, I was just, I saw like a, a little, a news piece about that they, that they, they're scouting locations on the Isle of Skye, I believe, in Scotland, maybe. Mm. I, I think I have that right. I, I, anyway. Um, anyways, the prequel, the spinoff, which HBO is already working on and right. is set to start filming actually very soon, is a thousand years prior to where we currently are. Okay. I think I may have said 10,000 in a previous podcast, and that's wrong. It's a thousand years. Got it. So because of this episode, when we get our little Valyria history lesson, yeah. I'm wondering if, if a thousand years ago is going to be... The height of the Valyrian Empire? Yeah, or at least the Valyrian Empire is still around. Is huh. it pre-Doom? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Here's the other call. Hey, Subclam fans, this is uh, Ryan from Virginia. Just got a little uh, observation I thought y'all might enjoy. Uh, I personally believe that Jorah and Tyrion are the worst buddy cop duo that we've gotten in the show so far. I know that uh, one of the great things about Game of Thrones is how great some of these uh, duo characters are. And I'm not saying it has anything to do with their acting. I just think you put two of uh, these two characters together and uh, it's just not not the best so my question to you is what do you think is the most trash uh, you know buddy cop duo in the show you know think back maybe like uh, Joffrey and Sir Marin or I don't know I feel like Pycelle and Cersei kind of got that buddy cop duo for a little bit at least until Kyvern came along whatever just want to get y'all's opinions uh, have a good one Okay, first, the Cersei and and uh, Pycelle are not a buddy cop duo. <laughs> all right, the buddy cop duos are the odd couples that get paired up to go on adventures together. Yes, not 
It's not just anyone who gets paired up in any way, shape, or form. <laughs> not to trash you, but uh, just for a little clarification there. And I enjoyed Tyrion and Jorah. I think the juxtaposition of like Jorah, who is the least talkative person of all time, and Tyrion, who is obviously very talkative, is hilarious. Well, so we, we've gotten two episodes so far with a little bit of their... Chemistry, journey, yeah, a, so a little bit, a and little bit. Jorah right now is relatively humorless. He has been exiled, and he is doing everything he can possibly think of to try to get back in Daenerys's good graces. So he's not—he's not really up for the for the quick banter right right about he's now. He's not up for the friendship. But like you said, it's it's as part of what makes it kind of funny is that Tyrion can basically be paired with anybody, right. and he is going to like push to have some type of relationship with them. More than anything, he just wants to be able to to talk to somebody. Well, more than anything, he wants to drink wine. He just but wants witty banter. But second to that, yes. yeah, he wants to be stimulated with conversation. And I think it's really cool in this episode when he gets a little bit of that from Jorah because Jorah knows the poem that he's yeah, reciting. Yeah, that was cool. That was like a cool finishes part. it for him, and that's like a really, really... I, I, I like that because this is... Two good characters paired together, and they're both intelligent and and know a lot of history. Know a lot of, of history, and and are actually kind of similar in a lot of ways. They, so. Yeah, they are, and I think that's kind of it's easy to call them the worst buddy cop duo up until this, like through this episode, maybe sure. Uh, but I think you see that potential there between the two of them. We get it from the line that Jorah finishes for him, mm-hmm. and I mean. I thought about some of the other ones, like the Hound and Arya, Brienne and Pod, Jamie and Brienne, Sansa and Littlefinger. Uh, there are plenty of other examples, and sh- I don't know that the only one that maybe I would axe before Tyrion and Jorah would be Sansa and Littlefinger, just because it's so well. And I don't even know if I put that one on the list. It might not count, yeah, because it, it for it to be a buddy cop duo, they kind of have to be striving for the same thing, and that's never the case right. with Sansa right. and Littlefinger. So, yeah, maybe Tyrion and Jorah is the worst buddy cop duo we get. But all the other ones are so fucking good that that's not really a knock. It's just a different kind of buddy cop duo. Yeah, like, that's that's more so than calling it the worst. I would just say it it has a different vibe to it. It's for sure. not as funny, and it's not meant to be as funny. Right, right. As I said, we have one other call we will play later in the show when it makes sense. Uh, so let's get into it. Season well, be- five. Before we jump in, sure. I did just want to... A quick overall HBO note. Oh, you know, they love... If you get on an HBO show, your career is largely safe. You're probably going to continue to be a working actor because they really, really love to like bring you back in yes. for small parts or medium parts or big parts in other shows that they do. Yes. So we just got through watching episodes three and four of this season directed by Mark Mylod, who went back to back. He did. And... Over the last week, I've been catching up on Succession on HBO, ah. and Mark Mylod is uh, an EP on that show, and I believe had possibly like a hand in in some of its creation and production, and he directs episodes two and three of Su- Succession, and will come back for episodes nine and ten as well. He just loves to go back so, to back. So, Mark Mylod, he's just, he's, yeah, he must have it in his contract. He only goes back to back, I think. Right. This dude's not just directing one episode. He gets two, or he walks. Yeah. In every in every instance of him appearing on the show, he has to get two in a row. <laughs> but anyway, shouts to HBO favorite Mark Mylod. Yeah, 
Thank you for that, Barrett. Season 5, Episode 5, Kill the Boy, written by Brian Cogman, who's also going back-to-back, and directed by Jeremy Potiswaugh. Uh, this one kicks off in Marine with Masande watching Grey Worm sleep. You have to remember he was stabbed up pretty bad in that ambush by the Sons of the Harpy last episode. We find out quit- pretty quickly here that Barristan Selmy is dead. Deceased. Kind of a shitty death for him. Like, I mean that in the... In Anticlimactic. Not, yes. Not the way he went out. The way he went out was very heroic. It was the... Nature, I guess, of not seeing him die because of the way the episode wraps and then he's just dead when the next one starts. Kind of a bummer. Uh, Danny's looking down on his corpse and uh, it just is another reminder of her little makeshift small council she's got going. It's just, it grows smaller and smaller, just like Cersei's. Jorah's gone, Barristan's dead, Grey Worm's badly wounded. Mm. It's, it's it's basically Masande and Dario at this point. She's in bad shape. Uh, looking over his body, she says, Barristan the Bold, they called him. He crossed a continent to serve me. He was a loyal friend, and he died in an alley, butchered by cowards who hide behind masks. Danny mentions that she's gotten, you know, Barristan urged for peace. Dario wanted to set up camp, move through the city neighborhood by neighborhood, street by street, and clear out the Sons of the Harpy. Uh, Danny, however, at this point, based on everything that's happened, now prefers Dario's earlier suggestion that they round up the leaders of each of Marine's great families and bring them to her, she says. So, one guy in the room, who I guess is technically part of her makeshift small council at this point, his Dar. Oh, and we're forgetting about the other guy who got his head chopped off. Her small council's a mess. His Dar, <laughs> Zolorak, who's the Miranese guy whose father was taken out when Danny conquered Marine. Mm-hmm. He's like, but. I'm the leader of my family. And then he immediately gets taken by the guards as he protests. So Danny's kind of up against it here. And she's just, she's like, get her wits in trying to figure out what the fuck to do about these sons of the harpy. So she takes the leaders of each great family of Marine down into the dungeon where Rhaegal and Viserion are being held. And then they're forced, like, by at spear point to walk one step closer and closer to the darkness in the dungeon where the dragons reside. Danny says, they will eat you. If I tell them to, they may eat you even if I don't. Some say I should give up on them, but a good mother never gives up on her children. She disciplines them if she must, but she does not give up on them. She's kind of like, she she's trying to intimidate these guys into making something happen, right? Well, I think what, what she thinks is going to happen is that his dar in particular will admit to some type of knowledge about the What's going of, on? The Sons of the Harpy or, or something that he hasn't revealed yet. Right. One dude gets pushed out a little further than the others, and he gets flamed um, really badly. The others just watch as his body burns alive, and the dragons literally tear him in half, and guts go everywhere. It's pretty gnarly. <laughs> Danny says, who is innocent? Maybe all of you are. Maybe none of you are. Maybe I should let the dragons decide. And she kind of puts her hand on his dar's shoulder and he just says, Valar Morghulis. Uh, Danny says, don't want to overfeed them. Tomorrow, perhaps. Yeah, which, I mean, Hisdar, I don't know if I'd call him unlikable up until this point, but he's not likable. He's kind of a weasel. He's, he feels kind of weaselly, yeah. indeed. And so I, she does her little, you know, mafia shoulder rub yeah. here. Yeah, yeah. And he is super stoic. 
He just, he, Valor Margulis. And you kind of got to respect him for that. Until like, later when I, he admits I, why. <laughs> I, I think that she is, you know, I think she's expecting some type of admission here. It's Ad- just, admission it's just, of guilt. Okay, I took it as she's trying to scare the great leaders of these families into doing something about the Sons of the Harpy. Like, she figures, I think what you're saying is accurate. She thinks these people know more than they're letting on. Yeah. That, that maybe... And there's like These this, guys there's, this look, there's this look on her face when his daughter just says Valor Margulis, like she's a little taken aback that right. this is not. She's surprised that yeah. he's willing to just go out. Yeah. And I think that's the result of him really not knowing anything. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's just that she doesn't know what else to do. She thinks one of these guys, surely one of these guys at least knows something that they can, they, they can do something to help mm-hmm. the situation. So scare tactics. That's all she's got at this point. Over at the wall, Sam reads an update to Amon Targaryen, Maester Aemon, about Danny's position in Slaver's Bay. So they're getting active updates about what's going on with Danny. I found that to be interesting. I did too, and I actually have a I I have a note about the note. Who wrote this note? That's a good question. <laughs> Who did write this note? I don't know. Who's updating uh, the world on the happenings of of Daenerys Targaryen? It hard to say. It hard to it hard to say. It indeed. is. As a reminder, by the way, Amon is uncle to Ares II, the Mad King, and granduncle to Danny. So the information he's being given is about his grand niece, mm. uh, which is important to him. He says, her last relation, thousands of miles away, useless, dying. A Targaryen alone in the world, it's a terrible thing. These people feel a connection to each other, obviously. It's not mm-hmm. just because of blood. It's the great history of their family and their line, their lineage. Yes. Uh, and it's, you know, it's something powerful for, for Amon, a guy who's kind of at the end of the the road mm-hmm. of life. <laughs> true. True yeah. that. Yeah. <laughs> John comes in to speak with Maester Amon, wants to talk to him alone. He wants advice on, see, he says something he knows he has to do, something that will literally make half the Night's Watch hate him, he says. And Maester Amon uh, ensures him that half the Night's Watch already hates him, so he should do it. And John's like, I didn't even tell you what it is yet. He's like, it doesn't matter. Do it. He says, you will find little joy in your command, but with luck, you will find the strength to do what needs to be done. Kill the boy, Jon Snow. Winter is almost upon us. Kill the boy and let the man be born. Great line delivered here Very by good. the old Maester Amon. Mm. And I also appreciated getting the title of the episode out front early in the episode. Very early on. Rarely Very happens. Early on. Rarely happens, but I appreciate it. Yes, it was nice. John then goes and meets with Tormund, and we find out about the plan that he was referring to that he thinks will make half the Night's Watch hate him. It's that, uh, first of all, he starts off by asking Tormund about the rest of the Free Folk, where they're at, who leads them, and Tormund says they follow Mance, they won't follow anyone else. We already knew that. John wants to know what would happen if he unchained Tormund. He says, for 8,000 years, the Night's Watch has been sworn to guard the realms of men, and for 8,000 years, they've fallen short of that oath because they haven't protected the wildlings, and the wildlings are part of the realms of men. Tormund is obviously very skeptical that anything is going to change just because a new crow is commanding the Night's Watch, even if he does know said crow. Uh, And then John tells him his plan. He says he wants for him to go north of the wall, Tormund, gather the remaining free folk wherever they are and bring them back here he says uh, he'll open the gates and let them through and he wants to give them lands to settle south of the wall 
Tormund is like, look, these people, they won't kneel for you and neither will I. And it just kind of hit me like so much of this show from this point forward, or actually from like last episode or the episode before that forward, is about kneeling. Mm-hmm. A great deal of it. John says, I don't want them to kneel for me. I want them to fight with me when the time comes. So John's seeing the big picture here. He needs all the wildlings to come south of the wall because if they don't, what happens to him? They turn into members of the army of the dead. At the very least, if they come south of the wall, maybe they can help. Maybe they can fight. That's the way he's seeing it. It's really the only way to look at it. He's being pretty logical about this whole thing. John points out to Tormund that the wildling policy of refusing to negotiate or cooperate in any way with outsiders is actually just condemning all the women, the children, the sick, the elderly to death. Worse than death, really. They'll be turned into members of the Army of the Dead. These are people who can't fight and defend themselves. So right. They're just, it's, they're hurting themselves even if they don't realize. Right, and their they're, and their thoughts on the matter, their choices are kind of being not re- they are not really being considered. It's one sided, very short sighted. Right, one sided and short sighted. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Then out of nowhere, John starts provoking Tormund, which seems like a really fucking risky move considering his size. He says, "Maybe you're just a coward." Tormund says, easy thing to say to a man in chains. And John immediately removes his chains without batting an eye, without breaking eye contact. It's a very big dick move that you have to respect from John. You do. The way he goes about doing that. I mean, because this is a 50-50 coin flip. It was risky, for sure. He could have got his head ripped off here. Mm -hmm. This is a guy who literally just watched a shit ton of his people die at John's hand. Now he's just unchaining him. But... John is perceiving Tormund in, to be kind of like, what is the word? Uh, he's compatible with him. Like, they're the same type of dude at the end of the day. And, and he, he, I mean, he thinks, I, I think there is this undercurrent of mutual, of obvious mutual respect. These are boys. Which is why I think he knows that Tormund won't just kill him right where he stands. And I think he's also hoping and appealing to something more practical yes and torment when you go through something together as john and torment have they've been through a lot they've done some crazy shit together they climbed the fucking that's wall right. together that is true you form a bond right even if you didn't know each other that well before and they got enough of that and i think became close like they're friends on some level hmm. mm-hmm. then things got torn apart but they were friends and there is definitely mutual respect there and it's just interesting to see john you know, perceive that and then correctly play his cards to to make this all work. After this little exchange, and quick quick aside here, I found myself wondering, is Tormund the best supporting character on this show of all time? He might be. I, I think I think he's in my number one slot for that. He's for th- so likable. Okay, who would you consider to be other, you know, supporting characters? I guess Davos? Like, yeah, right? Davos is a supporting character. Very e- good even, one. I mean... <sighs> but I'd still say Tormund is all around. Brienne, I'd even call like a supporting character. Sure. I, I mean, I'm pretty much saying anybody that's not kind of OG gang. Right, right. Cast, Stark, Lannister, Baratheon, Targaryen. I think Tormund is the one out of all of those that I could like most see myself wanting to be friends with, like wanting to be boys with, for sure. But... 
I don't. I mean, it's a, it's a. T- I bet other people disagree with us on that. Maybe so. I I'm I'm with you. I well, think he's the most enjoyable and entertaining out of all those secondary give, characters. Give, give us your takes. Yeah, for sure. Hit us up. Let us know. Um, John tells Tormund, your people need a leader. And they need to get south of the wall before it's too late. We don't have much time and they have less. The walkers are coming and they'll hit your people first. Because you have to remember that in order to get down to the south, they're going to mow through all these wildlings. He says, I'm not asking you to make peace to save your skin. Make peace to save your people. This is the same thing, again, that Danny ends up having to do with John uh, later on. Not not exactly the same, but it's the same idea. Uh, Tormund tells John most of the wildlings he's talking about are at hard home. I don't know if that's a place we've heard of up until this point. And John's like, all right, tight. I'll give you nine other men. I'll talk to Stannis. We'll see about getting his ships to get you over there. And Tormund's like, tight, tight. That sounds good. Tight, tight, tight. But you're coming with me. You're the Lord Commander of the Night's Watch. They need to hear it from you. They need to know that the ships they are boarding won't be torched in the middle of the sea. Either you come with me or I don't go. And John's like, okay. Then he goes and presents his plan, this plan, to the Night's Watch Council or what remains of it, and all the men. Uh, now, obviously, everybody's all up in arms about this shit. Anytime they want to talk about the wildlings or how they should work with them or save them or anything, everybody's like, ah, oh, fuck the wildlings. One man's like, let them die. Less enemies for us. And uh, then we have it. The first time Stannis corrects anyone's grammar on this show, <laughs> the guy yells out, less enemies for us, and then Stannis is just in the back, and he just goes, fewer. <laughs> But God didn't even see it. I it, it blew right past me. Yeah, and Davos goes, "What? Thank you for pointing this out." Stannis says, "Nothing." <laughs> That's incredible. Yeah, he's the goat grammar Nazi of all time. Fewer. Like no, no fucking competition here at all. Fewer. I love it. We need a we need a fucking shirt. That's just Stannis's face, and it just says one <laughs> word underneath it. Fewer. Fewer. Somebody please design that for us. We'll put it up in the Grand X shop. I'm serious. I'm not joking. I would wear that shirt. That's a great shirt. Anyway, again and again at, the, at this meeting, all these different dudes at the Night's Watch bring up examples of the checkered history between the wildlings and normal men. Uh, one of them's the guy who I can't recall his name off the top. Ed. He's like, they killed Grin. They killed Pip. It gets brought up that there he fifty of their brothers they killed uh, they killed Ollie's parents obviously that mm-hmm. gets brought up again because it always fucking has to. But John's point stands: either they learn to live with these people or they add them to the army of the dead. It's pretty fucking simple, right? It really is. Like I get that it's frustrating, but how many times do these people need it to be explained to them before they understand? It doesn't matter if you like them. The past is pretty much wiped clear. It no longer matters. What's past is past. They either get these people to safety or these people will join the army of the dead. Is it because people are still struggling to like believe that the army of the dead exists? Like, What the fuck is the holdup here? I mean, I think it is partially that everybody is still, yes, in a, Skeptical. In a bit of denial about what is actually going on and how that whole thing works and like that the army of the dead is actually coming for them. Yeah. And all of that. It's an important then, thing, though, but because Sam is the only one who's seen it. But then everybody also has a very personal, or Reason. a lot of these guys have very, very personal connections to why they do not like these well, people. Now, Ollie watches parents get slaughtered. Like All Ed, of them do now. Ed's best friends died at the hands of yes. wildlings. You know, so they're all, they're basically just all holding on to these grudges. No, none of them want to be the bigger person yeah and here. i get that it's just frustrating when it's like he's I, he's broken it down so simply 
Yes, John is super level-headed, very pragmatic about the whole thing, but you know, nobody nobody wants to hear that shit. I guess these people are idiots, is what <laughs> I'm saying, because if you tell me, look, hey man, you can either let your enemies come across onto this side or they're going to join up with the much more dangerous force and and you're going to have a bigger problem. I'm letting my enemies come over on my it's just you know, maybe I'm just smart though. I don't know. You know what they should have done is just been like, okay, okay, fine. All of them except for the Thens will kill all the Thens sure, sure. because they're because they're uh, cannibalists and we just can't have that. No, and <laughs> that could have been a little bit of every like everybody's happy, right? Cannibals, get to kill cannibals, can- not cannibalists. Cannibalists, <laughs> they're cannibalistic. Though. Yes, and there is cannibalism. but yes. they are just cannibals. Yes, yeah. I would have made everybody happy. You get to kill a little bit of wildlings. Yeah. Uh, some other ones come across. Everybody wins. I mean, they seem like the worst ones. They are. I think far and away the worst ones. I don't know if any of them are still alive. They might have all gotten taken out there in that uh, it's possible. siege of Castle Black. But whatever. Uh, in his chambers afterwards, Ollie comes in to bring John something. And John kind of prods him. He's like, look, man, if you got something on your mind, fucking say it. And Ollie says, you don't mean it, do you? Telling the wildlings you want to make peace, you're just doing it to trick them? Fucking Ollie still doesn't get it. He says, they burnt my village, they put an arrow through my father's head right in front of me, they butchered my mother, everyone I ever knew. And, uh, uh, Barrett, your point here, those were all thins. Yeah, see, he would have appeased Ollie as well. Yes. And everybody knows that Ollie was the ringleader in what happens later this season. He's a simple fucking twit, that Ollie. (laughs) That's what he is. he's He's a little dumbass. Anyway, bouncing away from Castle Black on the road with Brienne and Pod. They're just outside of Winterfell at this point, I believe, checking up on Sansa. They're trying to figure out what to do. Pod's arguing like, hey, maybe she's better off here, far away from the Lannisters. But Brienne thankfully sees that Sansa is still in very grave danger, even if she doesn't realize it. Brienne does not agree with Pod. Uh, at this point, some dude comes into their room. He's like room service or some shit. I don't know. He's like fluffing the pillows. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And Brienne questions him about how long he's lived there, if he knew Eddard. She's trying to get a feel for if this guy's a true northerner. Right. If he would be loyal to House Stark. Because she wants this man, this old random man, to get a message to Sansa. Uh, Brienne ensures this guy that she still serves Lady Catelyn. Uh, and then she asks this man who he serves. Then over in his chambers, Ramsay... And Miranda are naked, talking about the problem at hand. Ramsay marrying Sansa is obviously a problem for Miranda. Miranda says, you said you'd marry me. And Ramsay says he meant it, but he was a bastard named Snow when he said that. Now he's a Bolton, and what he wants to do is no longer the primary consideration. I'm fathering a dynasty, he says, or a dynasty, however they say it. He's furthering. Furthering a dynasty. Uh, Furthering it. Furthering it. And Miranda says, do you think she's pretty? Of Sansa. Ramsey's response is, of course I do. I'm not blind. <laughs> Which is not the answer, gentlemen. If your wife or your girlfriend or your lover of some sort ever asks you if another woman is pretty, just just do this. Eh, that's it. That's all you have to say. Yeah. Yeah, yeah she's all right. I don't know. Or, or yeah, she's cute. Don't ever fucking say something like this. Don't get <laughs> cocky about it. Anyway, but that, that would be totally unlike Ramsey. To say it that. would, it would, of course. Yes, also, but. really, just great job here uh, of showing that the people in the North get very little sunlight upon their bodies. They're vampiric. <laughs> yes. Yeah, they're very pale people. I appreciate that as a, as a very pale white man. <laughs> it 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 gives me a little bit of self confidence to just see other people who are more p- pale, as pale as can be. They are. They are. 
Uh, then they have a fight, Miranda and Ramsey, and the fight, you know, turns like sexy and sadistic. So I, I remember, I I, re, I remember this scene, and I remember it being those those words, sexy hot. and sexy and sadistic, kind of. Yeah. And on the second watch here, I found myself feeling kind of bad for Miranda because I kind of forgot about the whole thing where Ramsey's where Ram yeah, and Ramsey's basically like. If you well, if you start to bore me, I'll just kill you. Yeah, his, and so the quote I'm is, pretty sure she feels kind of pressured to like spice it up right there in that moment. <laughs> yeah. And then the looks on her face are just kind of all over the place. And I mean, Miranda's a psycho, but I, I did feel bad for her. It's here. uh, it's pretty complicated. The quote is, <laughs> "Jealousy bores me. Remember what happens to people who bore me. You're not going to bore me, are you, Miranda?" And he's referring to the other chick that they used to hang with who they hunted in the woods together <laughs> and murdered. So that's what he means by that's what happens to people who bore him. And yeah, there's like a lot of angry... She bites him. Yeah. There's, it's like angry, you know, painful boning that takes place after the fact. And you're exactly right. She has all these mixed emotions on her <laughs> face. It's like... Yeah, this this situation is, is complicated. Yes. It's, it's you know... It's no laughing matter, but it's also funny because it's not real. It's television, people. Anyway, Santa's hanging out in her chambers, and this old woman comes in. It's actually the first, the old woman from last episode who was like, the North remembers, and yeah. then just kind of left, and we were like, could you give us more information there, lady? Uh, she, the same old woman comes in. She says, you still have friends in the North. If you're ever in trouble, light a candle in the highest window of the broken tower. You're not alone. It's very mysterious. And I'm still not clear on why she can't be more clear about what it is she means. I guess it's like she's worried Sansa may give up those details to the Boltons or something. Yeah, I'm not sure. I, I mean, maybe this was the only way that they could get her a message is extremely cryptically. Light a candle in the highest window of the broken tower. You're not alone. Do I remember correctly that we attempt this and it's just a miserable failure? Yes. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah, it's a mess. The old woman also says... Also, we have taken the liberty of switching your old mattress out with a new one. <laughs> a Lisa mattress, your grace. The finest mattress in all the seven kingdoms. They if nothing they smuggled else, it in. you'll sleep like a queen. Yes, they smuggled it in <laughs> without Ramsay or Ruse knowing. No, they used all they pooled all of their resources and they had, you know, they had two choices. They could either get a clearer message to Sansa but no Lisa mattress. <laughs> <laughs> or they could get a, only a very vague cryptic message to her, but also the Lisa mattress, and the choice was clear. It's an easy choice. Yeah. It's an easy choice. You know why? Because a quality night's sleep helps you recover from distractions more quickly, prevents burnout, you make better decisions, you improve your memory. Overall, you're going to make fewer mistakes. Very important that Sansa makes as few mistakes as possible right now. I mean, they say that the only reason she eventually exacerbates herself from this situation, that was not the right use of exacerbates. <laughs> um <laughs> Roll with it. The, the, the only way that she gets herself out of this situation is because she was sleeping all those nights on the Lisa mattress. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and to exacerbate a better mattress, Lisa leveraged 30 plus years of experience, hundreds of hours of testing to develop the perfect mattress for all body shapes and sleeping styles. Their mission is to provide a better night's sleep for everybody. Through their 110 program, they donate one mattress for every 10 they sell. Up to 26,000 mattresses and counting at this point that they've donated. They strive to leave the world a better place than they found it, Lisa does. And that doesn't stop with the mattress donations. Together with the Arbor Day Foundation, Lisa plants one tree for every mattress they sell. They've committed to planting one million trees by 2025. For you, the Clam Fam, 
listeners of Oysters, Clams, and Cockles, you get 160 bucks off a Lisa mattress if you're looking to make the switch to the best mattress in the game right now by going to lisa.com slash dragon. Dragon. L-E-E-S-A dot com slash dragon. Dragon. $160 off your Lisa mattress. Bend the knee to better sleep. Next, Santa goes and looks at the highest window in the broken tower to get an idea of where this candle is supposed to go. Extricate. Extricate is the word that I was attempting to use when, oh. I, when I said exacerbate. Oh, it's close. Yeah. I, okay, I see that mistake. <laughs> uh, and that's where Miranda finds her. They make some small talk, and Santa's like, I'm sorry, who are you? <laughs> and she says, I'm Miranda, the kennel master's daughter. Also, we found out the origins of Miranda in this episode. In the previous scene, actually, Ramsey was like, "What? who are you going to marry? Who are you going to marry? The stable boy? Mm-hmm. You're the kennel master's daughter. What are you going to do? Uh, Miranda then takes Sansa to the kennels and says there's something else in there to help her remember her mother. Down at the end, she says, and Sansa's obviously scared and hesitant and does not trust this woman at all. She does not know her. But she goes into the kennels for whatever reason, and she goes into the back as the dogs go ape shit and bark all over the place at her, and which made my dogs go insane. This whole scene was very unenjoyable for me. It's it's a it's a terrifying kennel. This was all the barking and the just the chaos that was going on in the kennel yes. was uh, extremely unnerving. It was, it was jarring, very jarring. It's a well done scene to really create that. The anxiety, that, fe- man. that feeling of anxiety. Yeah, yeah absolutely. It's absolutely. bad. It's uh, is hell. And I'll, I'll say it was the it's the most frightening kennel I've ever seen. Mm. Under any, I guess the kennel wherever Ramsey was before, where uh, Theon's sister tried to come rescue him. That was a pretty scary one yep. too. But this mm-hmm. one's scarier. Yes, the kennels at Winterfell. At Winterfell. Very scary. And also, that's eventually where Ramsey dies, right there. Anyway. Uh, Santa goes down to the end of the kennels and what does she find? It's Reek. This is where he lives. He sleeps here on the ground like a dog. You shouldn't be here, he says. And Santa's obviously very angry, mixed up. H- has she not seen him up until this point? Uh, no. I, uh-uh. Okay, so that's the part that I kind of was, was lost on me. She has not seen Reek before right now. That's the whole reveal. That's the whole thing that Miranda was setting up for whatever reason. Next, we see Theon dressing Ramsay for the day, and Ramsay says, you smell particularly ripe this evening, which is a great compliment. He says, pour me some more wine. Reek tells Ramsay that Sansa saw him, that she came to the kennels. He thinks he's going to get in trouble. Ramsay makes him get on his knees and give him his hand. You think he's going to get another finger flayed or something here? Then he places his hand over Reek's and says, I forgive you. Not sure what the overall message from that was, but whatever. Next, Ramsay and Sansa dine with Ruse and his great big fat wife, Walda Bolton. Who- I, I, th- I think, just real quick to interject, I sure. think the, the hand thing, uh, all of these scenes with Theon right up until, uh, up until here have been, have, have kind of had one message to me, and that was that Reek is a dog. Yeah. He, and, and the whole, like, give me your hand thing and then putting this hand on top of it, it was like a, it, it, it's almost just like a, pow, like an alpha power thing. Mm. Almost, don't they, it, what, what it reminded me of was, you know, have you ever seen the newer Planet of the Apes movies? I haven't seen like the last two. Okay. Well, the, the apes, they, to show their respect to their leader, Caesar. Okay. They kind of like, they kneel down before him and they just kind of like, put up their hand and he like touches on top of their hand ah it's so it's a it's a 
power thing that is alpha more, deal more meaningful than it appears on the surface i think okay fair enough i always forget that ruse bolton's wife walda is actually known as fat walda <laughs> that's legitimately what she's known as that's crazy to me uh and the other thing easy to forget this is a fray this is walda fray this whole partnership here was bred of bruce and uh walder executing the red wedding this was like the other part of it like hey yes. yeah i'm gonna help you do this but you got to marry my fat daughter right whose name is fat walda not the nickname you want ramsey at this dinner makes a toast to sansa and their eventual wedding sansa doesn't drink which is funny Fat Walda says, this must be difficult for you, being in a strange place. And Sansa's like, this isn't a strange place. This is my home. It's the people who are strange. Ramsay's response to that is, you're right. Very strange. More wine, please. And in comes Reek. <laughs> Ramsay says, I heard you two had been reunited. A fitting place for it. I like to imagine that the last time you spoke was in this very room. Are you still angry with him after he, what he did? Don't worry. The North remembers. I punished him for it. He's not Ironborn anymore. Not Theon Greyjoy anymore. He's a new man. A new person, anyway. Aren't you Reek? That's his new name. Reek. Him trying to, like, show off, sort of, to a normal person who's not a sociopath like he is, is hysterical. <laughs> it's like the things he's like, he's proud of, like, that's his new name. That's his new name, Reek. And she's like, Jesus, dude. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's like normal people don't identify with shit like this, Ramsey. You're, you're, you're a psychopath. Ramsey then says Reek has something to say to Sansa as an apology. He makes Reek apologize to Lady Sansa for what he did, for murdering her two brothers. I'm sorry, Reek says. I'm sorry for killing your brothers. Remember, he didn't. Ra and Ramsey and Roos know, know that. Yes. Then Ramsey says, there. Over and done with. Doesn't everyone feel better? I do. That was getting very tense. <laughs> He's great in this episode, by the way. Uh, Ramsey then points out that Reek here is the nearest thing to living kin that Sansa has left and says, Reek, you will give away the bride. Someone has to. What better person? God damn it, dude. Like, you could not be less relatable as a bad guy. It just... Is he is he doing this just to be an asshole, or does he really yes. think this is a good idea? No, he is. This is absolutely just the beginning of Sansa's torture. Ah, yeah, that's a bummer. And he's he's being. I mean, I think he's maybe he's hoping that some of these jokes, and I mean they're they're really only jokes to him. Yeah, but but maybe that they'll land better. They're clearly not. But but he's also kind of reveling in the awkwardness that this is That's what creating. You get the feeling he's doing like the Norm Macdonald bit where you bomb, where you on, bomb purpose, on purpose. Yeah. And it's funny to you and everyone else is just awkward. I think that's a good that's a good comparison. It's really bizarre. Like cuz I just don't see what his end game is cuz he ends up getting scolded by Ruse for this this whole thing this whole, you know, strutting around his pet reek later on, but well, whatever. Anyway, Bruce then says that Walda and him have some very good news as well. They're going to have a baby, and this obviously upsets Ramsay very much, especially because Bruce says, from the way she's carrying, Maester Walkins says it looks like a boy. Sansa knows what that means. Ramsay also knows what that means. And Ramsay chugs his drink. And Sansa gets a little bit of redemption here, you know, that, yes. that this has been flipped. Congratulates, congratulates, and, Fat Walda. And now Ramsey is is in the uh, frying pan. Yeah, yes. <laughs> Later, 
when Ramsey and Ruse are alone, Ramsey prods at his father. He says, how can you be sure? I mean, that she's pregnant. How can you tell? He's making fat jokes. <laughs> He's saying that because she's so fat all of the time, he doesn't understand how you could tell she's pregnant. That's what he's saying. And Ruse uh, says, Maester Woken has assured us beyond all doubt. Ramsey's still pissed. He took this huge step forward to become unbastardized by the crown and to become a legitimate Bolton. And now his status as heir is obviously in jeopardy. So he just keeps digging. He says, how did you manage it? <laughs> and Ruse says, manage what? Ramsey says, getting her pregnant. Ruse says, I imagine you're familiar with the procedure. And Ramsey says, of course. But how did you find it? <laughs> Still making fat jokes. The implication being that she's so fat, it would be difficult to find her vagina. These are the jokes he finds appropriate to make at his father's expense at this point. That's what I mean. This whole episode is just him like saying shit that is only funny to him and no one else. And creates, it's just making his position worse though. Mm -hmm. I don't get it. Anyway, Roos calls him out and says, you're worried about your position. Ramsey says, my position is quite clear. I'm your son until a better alternative comes along. You got to hand him this. At least he sees the cards on the table. He realizes the position he's in. The The, the thing to me is like, Roos should have done something to squash this beef immediately. Like to make him feel better, even if it's just for the sake of making him feel better. He should have lied to his, uh, to Ramsey here. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I was thinking about that too. Kind of, why didn't Roos see Ramsey as the threat that he was? I don't know it's, because it because I, I'm I'm with you there. It's it's for us as the as the viewing audience. We're I'm sitting here saying, well, this is going to be a problem. Yeah, you're creating. You're creating an enemy in Ramsey who you know is 100% full sociopath and psychopath. Maybe you could have handled this differently. Yeah. But then, you know, I think the answer is kind of tied to the story that Roos goes on to tell. And that Roos is also a 100%, I mean, sociopath, psychopath, awful, awful, awful person. And so for him, it's he just thinks he's above Ramsey. Like he thinks that he can, he thinks in his mind that he'll best Ramsey no matter what. That right. he will have the upper hand against Ramsey. That's a good point. It, it's crazy that whole the information we get here when Ruse points out to Ramsey that he's never asked about his mother. Ramsey says something like, "Why would I? She had me. She died. Here we are." And Ruse says she was a pleasant, a peasant girl, the miller's wife. And apparently what happened is the miller's wife married this peasant girl without getting consent from Roos. The miller married the peasant girl. Yes, sorry. And Roos hanged the miller as a result, and then he raped that peasant girl who was now the miller's wife beneath the tree where he was swaying. She fought me the whole time, he says. She was lucky I didn't hang her too. A year later she came to my gates with a squalling baby in her arms, a baby she claimed was mine. I nearly had her whipped and the child thrown in the river, but then I looked at you and I saw what I see now. You are my son. We had never really gotten the full... I mean, outside of participating in the Red Wedding, which was mm -hmm. obviously heinous, right? we'd never gotten the... It's kind of like you always ask yourself, how did Ramsey become this evil? Like this evil. You know what I mean? Like he's sure, the most evil sure. character we've encountered. Right. And the answer is, well, first of all, he was born of rape and hate mm -hmm. and evil. But then... 
the man who raised him is just as evil as he is. He's just better at masking it, yes. really. Yeah, yeah. And you never really get that full breadth of how bad of a dude Ruse is until he tells this story. Exactly. And it's also because of the way he goes out where he's, quote unquote, betrayed by his own blood, by his son. Right. And we don't really necessarily see it coming right in that in that moment and ramsey is you know we see him do he he's he's made out to be more villainous than Roos. yes you know he's he's just painted with that more villainous brush he because, has a ton of villain swag right is what it is like right. he everything about him comes off as villainous from his facial features to the way he talks every fucking thing about him. right i mean he is a character on this show that is clearly a major major villain yes so that Roos death is not really as satisfying it should be yeah. as it should be and so I, I this is an important story to remember that when that does happen this dude gets what he deserved he man. for sure does because <laughs> like part of you is like oh man getting killed by your own son no yeah exactly exactly <laughs> this dude was a total piece of shit like yeah. a horrible person he just admitted to this boy yes uh, so that, getting murked by that son probably uh probably pretty fair you had that coming that's about <laughs> as fair as it gets honestly like it doesn't get more poetic than that anyway Roos talks to ramsey about how stannis is at castle black but he won't stay there for long because they, as they know stannis wants the iron throne and the road to king's landing comes right through winterfell so stannis means to take the north Roos says but the north is ours it's yours and mine will you help me defeat him and again, Ramsey says yes. So it's interesting. Every time he tees Ramsey up into a situation where you're like, dude, why are you fucking with the socio? He's going to murder you. He always follows it up with like, it's this, the the uh, carrot and the stick type of thing, you know? Like he hits him with the stick, but then he's like, he, he shows him how seriously he takes him as a son by saying, I want you to help me defeat Ramsey. Like, let's do this together. Stannis. I'm sorry, Stannis. Yeah. Uh -huh. Let's do this together. And Ramsey's like all about it. You see his yeah. eyes get big. He's like, damn, he really does love and accept me. We're going to do this together, me and my dad. It's just sad, really. But so anyway, this is the beginning of where they clearly are going to start hatching a plan for how to defeat Stannis when he comes north or south from where he is. Yeah, south from the wall mm -hmm. to Winterfell. Back at the wall, Gilly's walking around Castle Black's library, and she asks Sam if this is every book there ever was in the world, or whatever. Uh, they get to talking about libraries and the Citadel's library, which is supposed to be the largest one in the world, and it hit me that talking about libraries or large libraries for Sam is like a hetero jock talking about boobs or large boobs. <laughs> this is the most stimulating conversation he could possibly be having. He's just, all about or, libraries. Or just a hetero jog talking about like sports, right? Yeah, but I, I we needed to work boobs into this episode somehow. Sam might like Sam likes Gilly's boobs. Maybe, but not as much as he likes large <laughs> libraries. <laughs> is my argument. But maybe, yeah, whatever. It's uh, possible. Gilly asks where the Citadel is, and Sam says it's in Old Town. Gilly's response is, I'm sorry I don't know things, which is something that I've said too many times to count in my life and then Stannis walks in out of nowhere because what Stannis does right now at Castle Black is clear he wanders around interrupting conversations and shit that's it <laughs> that's all he has to do he should have left already I don't know why he's still fucking there he's basically just like 
it's like when you're standing on the edge of the high dive at a pool and you know you're going to jump but you're just waiting for the <laughs> you know what i mean like working yourself up that's basically what stannis is doing here at castle black yeah I like that he's just cruising around. He's just he's basically instead of just pacing back and forth in a room in one room, he's walking through all. He's just of them. pacing back and forth the entire Castle Black, just popping in <laughs> unnecessarily to any room where he overhears people having a conversation. Well, think about it this way: the only place he's ever truly been king is out at uh, what the fuck is the name of it? Dragonstone. Dragonstone. Right. Sure. That's the one place he's ever been where everywhere he walks around in that castle, everyone has to treat him like a king. But now he's got a new place. So he's going around just walking around from room to room and everybody has to respect him as king and, and you know, sure, talk sure. to him. Anyway, he says, you're Samuel Tarly. Your father is Randall Tarly. He defeated my brother at the Battle of Ashford. Only battle Robert ever lost. I told him he shouldn't go so far west so soon, but he never listened. Fine soldier, your father. You don't look like a soldier, but I'm told you killed a White Walker. How? And Sam explains the dagger, the dragon glass. Stannis says he knows what it is, Dragonglass, because they have it in Dragonstone. But he asks, why would, an, why would Obsidian kill a White Walker? And we have a hotline call about this particular scene, so I'm going to play it now. Hey, guys, it's Charlie from Virginia. I just want to say I'm, I'm watching episode five, Kill the Boy, right now. I know I'm ahead of the curve. But there's one thing that kind of chapped my ass. It's a great episode. I really love the dinner scene, especially when Sansa uh, congratulates um, the, the fat wife that she's going to have a baby. But um, I'm at the scene between Stannis and um, and, and uh, Sam, and he's talking about Dragonglass, and Stannis says, I know Dragonglass, we have it at Dragonstone. He literally says it, and then it takes them so much fucking time to figure out where they're going to mine it, but it, he literally gives it to them right here. He says, we have it at Dragonstone, and it never resurfaces until Sam's at the Citadel. Anyway, just thought I'd throw that out there. Kind of chaps my ass. Keep doing what you guys are doing. So this gets brought up a ton, right? Like later in Season 7 when we get to the whole, we need Dragonglass. Where are we going to mine all the Dragonglass? Where's the Dragonglass? It came up, people were upset that Sam was told in this scene... We have that in Dragonstone. Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely have the note right here. Like, Stannis drops the little dragonglass of Dragonstone nugget. And the only reasonable explanation is that Sam just kind of forgot or let it slip in one ear and out the other. Right? Because I but, think that's right. Yeah. But how, dude? Right. If you've identified that dragonglass is going to be so he, important. Right. Because he would be on top of all that stuff. It's so fucking weird. It's just not character. It's not. It doesn't fit in with Sam's character of being this knowledgeable, very smart, you know, guy. It just and the weird. other option also doesn't make sense, and that's that the the GOT team and the writers' room forgot that they had given us this nugget. But Which there's is just unlikely. no way. There's just yeah, no way. That's very unlikely. If 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 I can remember it, they sh they definitely do remember it. I don't know. Maybe it's just the way it tied together. It's just an interesting thing that's always bugged people. Hmm. So we had to address it. Uh, but Sam says he doesn't know why Obsidian would kill a walker. He's been researching, going through all the old manuscripts, hoping to find something, and that all he's learned so far is that the children of, of the forest, use, they used to hunt with dragonglass. Here's the, that, that just furthers the point. 
He's doing all this research trying to find out about Dragonglass, and all he's found out so far is that the children of the forest used to hunt with it. So you would think if he's got a fucking piece of paper, the top of it just says Dragonglass with an underline, and everything else is notes <laughs> that he's learning. And so far, the only fucking thing he's got written is the children of the forest used to hunt with it. When Stannis said, we have it at Dragonstone, <laughs> he should have made another fucking bullet point and written... They have it at Dragonstone. That is true. He should have done that. Come on, guy. That's what you get for not taking notes. Got to take notes, kids. Anyway, Sam tells Stannis that uh, he's seen the army of the dead. Stannis is like, well, we need to figure out how to fight him. So keep reading, Samuel Tarly, and forget everything I said about Dragonstone. That's what he says when he's walking out. Stannis then stomps over to Davos' chambers because he needs more people to talk to. And he says, it's time. Davos is like, wait, shouldn't we wait for Jon Snow to return with the wildlings? We could have thousands more men. And Stannis is like, no, we can't fucking wait. We have more men. We have more horses. They're all fed and rested. And every day that we wait, the Boltons gain favor. Give the order we leave at sunset. Which again begs the question, hey, man, what have you been doing the last few weeks or days? However long it's been. It just He's just been walking around. Diving board situation. But, uh... Davos asks Stannis' permission here to stay behind, to guard the queen and princess at Castle Black. And Stannis is like, oh, there's no need for that. They're coming with us, which is weird. You're like, why does this information matter? And you don't know the first time you watch. We know exactly why they're being brought. It makes me wonder, did Stannis know? Does Stannis already know at this point that they're going to be sacrificing Shireen? No. He just knows they have to be brought. I'm assuming Melisandre told him, hey, you can't leave them here. We need them. You got to bring them with us. He, she, he, she just hasn't told him why, I suppose. Well, Stannis sees it in the fire. Stannis knows what's happening. Or wait. That's or what does, I'm saying. Or does, the queen, or does the queen see it in the fire? Oh, the queen. See, Stannis, I don't think, has seen it. I think I think Selyse has seen it. Selyse. Okay. Regard, it's just weird to set it up for us like this before we even know... What's ha- anyway, it, it's pretty clear something's going to happen with either the wife or the daughter at this point. Um, but no, I, 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 the fact that Davos asks to stay could indicate that he's worried something yeah, like that bit, could happen. Maybe, but there's, but he definitely no, because if he knew that something like that would happen, he would have done everything in his power to stop it. Oh, he probably sure. would have killed Stannis. Yeah, yeah. I mean. You got to remember how angry he is when he finds out what happened. When he finds a little wood toy in the in the sand, right? Somehow, at the burn site, <laughs> still not clear on how that exactly went down. But anyway, so the next morning, Stannis and his squad are getting ready to roll out. First, he and John run into each other, and Stannis is like, "I hope you know what you're doing with those wildlings. I need those ships." And it's crazy. That he's just loaning John all of his ships or some of his ships to use to go to Hardhome. He really, really trusts John. Yeah, yes. And it, because first of all, he would never do this for anyone. No. And <laughs> the other question was, how the fuck is he going to get the ships back? If he, I guess, there had to have been some contingency plan here. Like, all right, you're going to borrow my ships. You're going to go up to Hardhome, do your thing. Meanwhile, we're going to be riding south to Winterfell. Uh, after you guys are done with your little mission, you're going to send like X amount of sailors to bring the ships over to me. At, what was the next move here? I guess it doesn't really fucking matter. We never get to that point. Mm-hmm. But there had to have been some plan, right? Right. They'll get the ships back to yeah, somehow. Stannis somehow, yeah. The tone of this episode, of the music, of the the lighting, the everything about this scene as Stannis and his men roll out here 
leave winter or leave mm-hmm. uh, Castle Black is very bleak. Yes, the the mood in general, it just it's bleak, and I guess that's the one word you would pick to describe Stannis. Mm-hmm. Bleak. Over in Marine, Grey Worm wakes up, and Masande is still there watching him. She tells him he's been in bed for three days, that Sir Barristan didn't make it. And Grey Worm is very upset by that. He says, I failed him, I failed my men, I failed my queen. Missandei tries to ensure him that he fought bravely. He was ambushed, he was outnumbered. And Grey Worm's like, no, no, not because of that. There's no shame in being wounded in war. He is ashamed because when the knife go in and I fall to the ground, I am afraid. Missandei says, all men fear death. And Worm says, no, not death. I fear I never again see Missandei from the island of Noth. It's messy. It's messy in the worm, 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 yeah. worm, worm, worm. <laughs> so Missy starts crying, and she gets in bed with him, and, and they share their first kiss. It's very poetic. And this is it. We're off on the Missy and the Worm love boat tour. Hell yeah. It has kicked off from the docks. It is slowly floating into the ocean of love. Uh, Danny meets with Masande next. She's trying to figure out what to do, and she wants Masande's advice, her counsel. She's got to turn to somebody here. And uh, she's already gotten everybody else's opinions. Missande basically tells Danny that sometimes you have to ignore your counselors when there is a better choice, only one that you can see. So, Danny goes to Hisdar and apologizes. She says she was wrong and he was right about tradition, about bringing the people of the city together. And she says, I will reopen the fighting pits to free men only. Slavery will never return to Marine, not while I live. And in order to forge a lasting bond with the Miranese people, I will marry the leader of an ancient family. Thankfully... A suitor is already on his knees. 100% forgot this was something that was uh, intended it at one point. It comes so far out of nowhere. <laughs> and it makes you forget that there's like multiple, there's all kinds of marriage suitors and, and plans for different guys along the way. Mm-hmm. Like that other dude at uh, the big phony back at Karth. Yep. There's just, it's just yep. all types of weird situations with her in marriage. And, and this Hisdar dude, jackpot. For this guy. I would say so. He was about to be roasted by dragons. Now he's about to marry the queen of dragons. Mm-hmm. This is a sick upgrade, bro, compared to what looked Turn like was going to happen. Yeah, 20 minutes ago, he was about <laughs> to get roasted. Now now they're going to get married. He's just like, what? This wild roller coaster of emotion for his dar. Over on the boat, the rowboat with Jorah and Tyrion. And Tyrion continues to, to try to make small talk with Jorah. We, talked, we touched on their buddy cop components earlier. Jorah ignores him completely. And Tyrion has a great line. He says, Long, sullen silences and an occasional punch in the face. The Mormont way. Which <laughs> really should be printed on their shield or their fucking uh, sigil or whatever, man. That's, well, that, that will be the title of the biography that somebody writes about Jorah, Jorah <laughs> Long, Mormont. sullen silences and an occasional punch in the face. Colon, the Mormont way. Yes. Yeah. He's trying to get this dude to open up. He says this doesn't have to be an unpleasant trip. He's also just still trying to get Jorah to give him wine because he's going through horrific withdrawals as a raging alcoholic. He says, I'm a person who drinks. People who drink need to keep drinking. Otherwise, they're not. Then he realizes where they are. Jorah is taking them through Valyria. And Tyrion's pretty worried by this. He says, you know what they say, the doom still rules Valyria. What about the demons in the flames? Aren't you afraid of the doom? And Georgia says, no, but pirates are. So his point is, they're going through Valyria at risk because no one else will. Right. And he can safely travel with Tyrion through this area. 
So they're going down the smoking sea as Tyrion wonders aloud how many centuries until they learn to build cities like this again. Apparently this city used to be the most high-tech, fancy, awesome architecture, kick-ass city in the world. Mm-hmm. And just for the sake of getting, you know, we've touched on the Doom of Valyria many times, right? We're always like, oh, what exactly was it? Or what? what? Here's the reason you don't exactly know. It's because it was a catastrophic event that took place nearly 400 years before the War of the Five Kings. It destroyed the city of Old Valyria, which is what you're seeing them sail into right now. Devastated most of the surrounding Valyrian Peninsula. And this, this cataclysm was of an unspecified nature that caused the collapse of the Valyrian freehold, it, which had been prospering for 5,000 years. So this place was around forever, then out of nowhere... This ridiculous, unexplained, catastrophic cataclysm of an event takes place. Uh, it occurred approximately a century before Aegon's conquest of Westeros in 114 BC, if that helps. And uh, <laughs> this cataclysmic event obliterated. What, what, what does BC even mean in the in this in before, this frame, framework? Our intern Luke just informed us it means before Aegon's conquest. Okay. So yeah, if approximately a century huh. before Aegon's conquest, 114 BC, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Anyway, this event, yeah. okay. when okay. it happened, instantly destroyed most of the world's dragons, along with a vast wealth of ancient knowledge, much of which concerned now forgotten magic. So maybe the reason we don't know in this modern day and age of Westeros and Essos why we don't know about a lot of the magical type of shit, like what brands got going on, you know, the Three-Eyed Raven, or how to bring dragons back, or how to kill dragons, or how to kill White Walkers. All of that was buried when Valyria got rocked by the Doom. The Doom, a little more specifically, there was explo- what we do know is this. Explosions from within the Earth so powerful that the Valyrian Peninsula was ripped to shreds hmm turning the single landmass into a collection of shattered islands that still smolder some 400 years later. Smolder means smoke because of heat. Yep. So it, it sounds like this place is a fucking volcano. Right, yeah. Is what it is. Yes, yeah, something like that. Yeah. Next, we get one of the most moving moments in the show's history. As Tyrion and Jorah are sailing into Valyria, the beat of wings, like really slowly, can be heard overhead. And then slowly, calmly, Drogon flies by as Tyrion just stares up in shock. This is the first time he's ever seen a dragon. Yep. This is a big moment for Tyrion to know that they're real, to know for whatever reason there's one right the fuck there. It's a dope scene. Very cool scene. Unfortunately, the moment is very short-lived. He, Tyrion doesn't even have time to process what's happening when a loud splash occurs near their boat. Something has fallen into the water. And guess what? It's the fucking stone men. Stone men, Jorah yells out. Don't let them touch you. Then this fight breaks out. Jorah's fighting these guys off. Tyrion's trying to get Jorah to cut him free because his hands are still tied. He can't do shit. Jorah doesn't. Uh, there are multiple instances during this little chaotic scene here where it looks like at any second one of these two guys could be touched. And as we know, you don't want to be touched. Uh, Tyrion is forced to push himself overboard at one point. Then he's grabbed by the pants by a stone man who drags him down, down into the darkness. And you'd think the episode's going to end right there. And frankly, right, right. I think it would have made sense to have it end right there. Uh, and then to do the Jorah reveal at the beginning of next episode, but that's just me. I'm not complaining. I'm just saying if it was me, that's how I would have done it. Um, but Tyrion wakes back up. 
He comes to on the sand, and Jorah is standing over him. Did any of them... Oh, first of all, he says, uh, you're all right. You're heavier than you look. Did any of them touch you? No, Tyrion says. You? And Jorah shakes his head. No. Tyrion says, I've seen Grayscale before. Nothing like that. And Jorah mentions, I suppose that's why they sent them here to old Valyria. And Tyrion says it, it would be kinder to put dragger, daggers rather in their hearts and be done with it. Also, if Tyrion had passed out, though, like that, he could have gotten touched and not known it. Yeah. They, okay, I always had a problem with this scene. And I always had a problem with this whole way this unfolds. And I, I get that it is what it is. Hip, why? How the fuck does he know he hasn't been touched? Yeah. You just woke up, bro. You haven't even, like, looked, like, like check your body out. Your feet. You got grabbed by the fucking pants leg. You, how do you know? <laughs> right. You know right. what I'm saying? It's just, it, I'm with you. That I didn't like the way they unfolded this whole thing, but it's pretty short-lived. The problem is, or, you know, the mystery is is given up pretty quickly. Yeah. Jorah gets touched, not Tyrion. Yeah, he so. got touched. He's got some grayscale. Uh, Tyrion mentions, I've never seen, oh, sorry. I, it was interesting to me that they had the conversation about, like, why are these guys sent here? And Tyrion's like, why not just kill them? I don't get, is it, is it kind of like in a zombie situation? Like, you don't want to kill the zombie that used to be, that your girlfriend is a zombie now, and you don't want to kill her just out of, in case there's a cure for the zombies guess, later on. Yeah. This is fucking stupid. Kill all the stone men. If your girlfriend turns into a zombie, kill the fucking zombie. It's over. Yeah. You're not coming back. There's no Will Smith out there finding a cure or whatever. Just, it's over. <laughs> okay. If it, when we are in this situation, inevitably, as a, as a human race, at some point, just fucking kill the person that's infected with the disease that could take over the whole of yep. mankind, okay? Do yep. us all a favor. Anyway, so Jorah walks away from Tyrion. He says he's going to get some wood for a fire, and then he looks out at the horizon and dramatically pulls back his sleeve, and we see it. It's a small spot of grayscale. It's the size of, like, I don't know, a little bigger than a quarter that is broken out on his left forearm where he was touched. He has been stricken with grayscale, which is not good. Jorah cannot catch a fucking break. Not good. Not good. Roll credits. And that was it. I thought this was a fun one, man. It's a good episode. Um, I, here's my big note from this episode, and it'll it kind of applies to season five overall. Okay. I think that we're the most spread out with the most concurrent storylines that we have in the entire series. Ever. It is crazy how how far and wide we yeah. are right now, and you feel it, and you, you do because we there were we we didn't touch on Arya, we didn't see Littlefinger, we didn't spend any time in King's Landing this month. We have no idea what's going on in Dorne this month. Or, I'm sorry, this week. Okay, we don't know what's going on in Dorne. Right. I mean, like everybody is just all over the place. Yeah. The only time that I ever felt this scattered is during season seven. And that was only the result of the episodes, or the season being shorter. So they kind of had to do, like, you remember the the parts where we kept bitching about, like, how fucking long does it take to ride a dragon from A to B? Or uh -huh. wait, wouldn't it take you like, it feels really spread out and you're very confused about how all the travel works. And that's the only other time I felt like that. And that was more of a constraint of, of production. Right, right. This is more of like, the characters are just fucking all over the place. Yeah, right. And even within, I mean, the, we're, we're about to make it a little bit tighter because Jorah and Tyrion will jo join up with Daenerys yeah. and um, and Varys. That right. group will all come together. And but But other than that, you know, we've just got everybody completely scattered. The only people who are where they end up 
is Cersei, who never leaves King's Landing. Correct. Ever. Literally yep. in the entire fucking series so far. And Sansa, who's in Winterfell. That's eventually where she ends up again. Mm, mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. she leaves before she comes back. Right. Everybody else is in some random place <laughs> that they're not going to spend more time at after this season is over. Like, they're going to end up somewhere else. So, yeah, it feels it feels a little chaotic. It feels a little uh, like we're stretched thin. But I think they're doing a really good job, at no, least I mean, on this watch, of, of keeping it all moving. Yes. And it's fun. It's fun to have all these different storylines. But when people talk about, like, how a show can sometimes get bloated uh, like this is the type of thing that they're referring to is like they had to keep so many plates spinning in the air yep and if you and, mismanage and, it it's and, a fucking right disaster. And so really they did i know that season five i think we're i think every most of us are on board with like season three and four really being like the pinnacle peaking of the yeah. show yeah. But they handled all these storylines as best they could have, I think, in season and that's, five. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of with you. The more I watch it, the more of a respect I gain for how, Cause this is how much they managed, <laughs> man. This is a lot of shit. Like, yeah. I mean, it is just fucking chaos. And you, to think that they had to sit down and be like, all right, here's where we are at the beginning of the season. Here, Well, a lot of this, again, you have to remember, the reason it's executed so well is because GRRM is mm-hmm. still heavily involved. Mm-hmm. That is kind of the reason people during season seven were like, maybe get George more involved because you guys not knowing what's going to happen here kind of made it all a little more, right? just felt not done as well. But it's like you wonder why the Sand Snake storyline ends up being kind of shitty. Well, because well, they, don't have time they didn't have time to have shit. They, they just didn't have time to, to expand on it. Somebody's on the fucking cutting board. Exactly. They had to yeah. make cuts. They yep. had to make decisions. And uh, the Sand Snakes, while very lovely, were the obvious choice. Right, yes. Nobody gives a fuck about these girls, man. <laughs> fuck them. It's kind of cool and they play a part, but dude, come on. We don't need to spend mm-hmm. more time on them than we need to. Yeah, I mean, give me all of the Jorah and Tyrion. Yes. And, and, you Way know. before that shit. Exactly. Because these characters matter yep. long term. Yeah, I'm with you. We'll be back next Monday to talk about the sixth episode of season five, Unbowed, Unbent, Unbroken, written by the Cogman, Brian Cogman. And directed again by Jeremy Potiswa. So this is like a back-to-back writing and directing duo. Okay, okay. Good for these guys. Tag Res- team in it. Respect. Cogman and Potiswa went back-to-back on Season 5, Episode 5, and Season 5, Episode 6. Follow us, Oysters, Clams, and Cockles. Follow the podcast on Instagram, at Oysters, Clams, Cockles. And on Twitter, at Clams and Cockles. You can also like us on Facebook.com slash Oysters, Clams, Cockles. Uh, my social media, Ross, you can follow me at WRBolin on Instagram, Snapchat, and Twitter. Barrett, where can the Clam Fam follow you? Follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Barrett Dudley. And also, please check out my new Instagram account for the new podcast, Club Cool. It is at Club Cool Pod. And if you have not listened to last week's episode, go to Grand X Labs, check out V3. My guest is Phil Battaglia. And uh, we've got something exciting planned for V4, which will come out on Wednesday as well. Oh, oh yeah, hon. Barrett's podcast, Club Cool, on Grand X Labs right now. My other podcast, the Ross Bolin Podcast. Just search the Ross Bolin Podcast on Apple Podcasts. If you're looking for two other shows, more time to kill, very easy choices. If you need more of me and Barrett, very easy to get access to those. Again, our hotline number is 866-43-CLAMS. Keep the calls coming in. If you are enjoying the night's rewatch, we would very much appreciate if you would leave a rating and review very quickly on iTunes. It means a lot to us. 
keeps the clam fam growing, gets us more exposure on the Apple charts. A lot is accomplished via rating and reviewing. So do it. Check out grandexshop.com slash OCC for shirts to support the podcast that look tight and will make you look fucking spectacular, including the shirt that was promised. Uh, Game of Thrones themed shirts, Oysters, Clams, and Cockles themed shirts. We're going to be coming out with more and more of these, by the way, in the near future, so that's something to get excited about. See you all next Monday. Thank you very much. Later. Later.